Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. With all the attention on the refugee crisis, Obama has pledged to carve out space in the U.S. for those escaping war and violence. To each of us do our part, and the United States has to step up and do its part. Platitudes aside, there's already a humanitarian crisis at America's doorstep. Due to extreme poverty and violence across Central America, there's a massive number of people fleeing for their lives. Violence in the region has also pushed a startling number of unaccompanied children to the border. In 2014 alone, nearly 47,000 children without parents were arrested while crossing into the U.S. from Mexico, a 92% increase from the previous year. Instead of helping these refugees, Obama's taken on the legacy of deporter-in-chief by ejecting humans at a higher rate than any U.S. president. During the first five years of his term, Obama oversaw the deportation of two million people, more than Bush's entire tenure. Families are being torn apart by these policies. In 2014, 4,500 families were deported between October and November alone. During the same two-month period in 2015, the number skyrocketed to 12,500. Staying up to speed, the Obama administration ordered a new wave of raids to kick off the new year, kicking down the doors of hundreds of sleeping women and children, uprooting countless more families. But to get here, these families risked everything, and most will risk it all again. Beyond the shocking numbers of arrested, jailed, and deported is the hidden side of the war on immigrants. It's a war that doesn't just have prisoners, but fatalities, thousands of them. The land itself becomes a weapon. Before 1994, there were as few as five bodies of migrants found in the Arizona desert per year. Since 1994, state officials have registered over 7,000 human remains, over 200 per year. But many of the bodies are never found. Because the traditional points of entry are now militarized, people have no choice but to go on the most perilous journeys through the desert, risking their lives in extreme temperatures for days, sometimes weeks, with an array of dangers. In response to this huge humanitarian crisis, many dedicated people in border states have organized life-saving support. Organizations like No More Deaths in Arizona trek miles across the desert to strategically leave water and food for passing migrants, an act that saves countless lives. The Empire Files crew went to the Arizona-Mexico border on one of its latest missions. So Chris, where are we right now? We are south of the town of Maricopa, which is uh in Pinal County, uh, Arizona. We try to make a trip every weekend here to either one side or the other of this mountain because there are trails where we find uh, garbage that definitely came from south of the border. People don't realize that these people really are facing extremely perilous travel yeah. to try to survive and, ha and help their families. Ever since the border militarization, uh, you know, the traditional porous border where people come to work and then take the money back home with them doesn't work for them anymore. Once you cross the border, it's like you don't want to go back and do that again. And instead, you send for your family. And so over the past 15 years, more younger people have been found uh, 
one of my friends who got a ticket for littering, um, the first one that I know of, found a 14-year-old girl. Oh my God. How long was she out there? Um, they had been looking for her for two weeks, so she, um, and it was in the winter time too, so she probably froze the cat. And we have a, a monument there where they found her. Despite doing nothing but providing humanitarian aid, activists leaving water in the desert have been slapped with such outrageous offenses like criminal littering, comparable to corporations' toxic dumping, to smuggling and aiding and abetting terrorists. Uh, unfortunately, now, 11 years later almost, um, I, don't, I don't think any of us thought that we would still be having to do this work mm -hmm. at that time. Um, we were in an emergency mode because the death rate had gone up so dramatically um, that we just knew we had to get out there and we had to um, get medical care out in the desert and, and look for people in distress. In terms of the militarization of the border, what, what policies are being put in place that are kind of driving people out farther and farther into more desolate drop-offs and, and paths? So the... Um, the funnel effect is, is all part of the plan. It's all part of Border Patrol's strategy to push people into ever more dangerous areas as a form of deterrence. And so um, what we've seen is that we now, have to be, we now have to operate in areas that are further north, like where we are here, and further west than ever before because certain areas are shut down by enforcement, and it's like squeezing a balloon. People are just going to go... Uh, another route mm -hmm. and into more distant, more remote areas. Deaths have increased dramatically as an intended result of Border Patrol and one of the most cruel tactics ever employed by the U.S. government. Border Patrol settles itself strategically across the border to force migrants onto the most dangerous, death-defying routes. In its own internal document from 1994 laying out the strategic vision, it says, the prediction is that with traditional entry routes disrupted, Illegal traffic will be deterred or forced over more hostile terrain. Crossing through remote, uninhabited expanses of land and sea along the border can find themselves in mortal danger. The inhumane logic is that death will be the deterrent, that if enough people die in the desert, the horror stories their mourning families will spread will scare people from coming altogether. Um, unfortunately, all we've seen is is all death and no deterrence. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, that policy is successful. Right. It's done exactly what it was meant to do, and it, it was set out to uh, force people through dangerous areas and to use, use the desert as a graveyard. Yeah. And then if you get through, then you can come and, you know, <laughs> and, and work for, for little pay and be exploited by employers in the U.S., you know, but that's, that's, uh, that's if you get through the gauntlet. In such brutal conditions, water is heavy to carry and runs out quickly. Coming across water in the desert can literally mean life or death. No More Deaths looks for clues for migrant routes to hide water, such as clothing like the shoes in a backpack we found on the third site we went. Messages of encouragement are written on the bottles. They must be strategically placed so it could be seen by passing migrants, but not too obvious that it could be noticed by border patrol or militias who go out of their way to vandalize and destroy the water, an utterly heinous act 
knowing it results in death. We definitely see an increase when there's more militia in the area, vigilantes, or even hunters during that season. Um, but then when it comes down to it, we know that it's border patrol sometimes. They have a memo from their supervisor, from the chief, that they shouldn't vandalize humanitarian aid supplies. We know that it definitely happens. You know, I don't care. I don't care at all. Now, please One don't touch. Please don't touch me. Here you get a good shot. Picking up this trash somebody left on the trail. It's not yours, is it? All you have to do is tell me, is it yours? So what's most common is slashing. And so you can see that someone just took like a razor to it and just, and just slashed the whole bottle. Um, sometimes they're perfectly poured out, um, you know, just with the lids off. Uh, and, and other times um, what's most disturbing is uh, people will write messages on the bottles or do things to the bottles like adding coloring of some sort that makes the water um, that who knows what it does to the water, what they're actually adding to it, and makes it so that the water's there, yet in a very cruel way, it's not gonna be trusted. I think to destroy water in a desert is one of the most vicious things that you can do mm -hmm. for all life. Mm -hmm. um, water is, is, is extremely symbolic and significant in the desert. Right. And so I think to destroy it um, has Sends a, sends, a, sends a much larger signal. Yes. You know, how anyone could believe that it's okay to kill someone who's trying to feed their family, um, who's just trying to come and get back to their family, um, it's beyond me. And I, I think it really does have to do with racism. Yeah. People that have been in need of medical attention and have actually been left behind by the uh, people who are leading the path. Exactly, and that's uh, the people, in terms of the people who die, um, it, it usually is because they have been left behind. Yeah. Um, maybe they tripped and, and they fell at night and then they twisted their ankle and so they can't keep up with the group. Or very commonly, um, the Border Patrol has a tactic of dusting with helicopters where they come down um, upon a group because they know where groups are moving. They yeah. can see all of that. Um, and they'll come down and dust them, get really low and it's this very violent experience where all the rocks and, and everything is kind of in the air. It's a really loud noise. People are horrified. They scatter. You fall. You run. You get completely lost and completely separated from your group. And that's a way for them to divide the group up and then try to round them up. Or we stop the truck and we look up and just, you know, on the side of the road was a man that was laying under a tree. And so we jump out um, of the vehicle and... Um, run over to him and are tapping his feet uh, and he's he's clearly not dead um, and you know checking his pulse he's alive um, and he's and he's laying there and, and we're, we're all around him and he opens his eyes and he looks up at me and and he says in Spanish um, are you angels and I cry every time I tell the story um, and you know I said no we're we're here we're we're from the church we're just people that want to help you and um, he really had laid down thinking that he was laying down to die that day. The Colibri Center for Human Rights is just one of several border organizations that help migrant families identify the remains of lost loved ones. 
Calibri's database contains records of 2,500 bodies, 900 of which remain unidentified. Each one of these binders represents a year, and uh, these all contain the records for unidentified persons found in that year. So for a county of this size, this is really remarkable that we have to have binders this large. This tells me that this is a, an adult female, uh, most likely, who um, was about five foot two, um, had been dead more than two years, and was found in Pinal County. Here in Pima County, we have almost 900 people who haven't been ID'd. Something I never expected going into this work is that, you know, making a, a death notification that you would be thanked for that. And I think it's because people are in this, like I said, like a living nightmare and like they don't have any answers. And so actually having the confirmation of death is, is seen as a blessing in, in some way. One would think this is the worst news in the world, but it just shows you how the pressure we're putting people under and the inhumane kind of conditions that people are faced with when they actually thank somebody for telling them that their son has died. The vast majority are exposure, uh, but some years the vast majority are undetermined because there's skeletal remains and there's no real way to tell. Um, but by and large it's exposure to the elements, so dehydration, hypothermia, hyperthermia, um, heat stroke. From what I understand, it's, it's a very painful death. It's a very disorienting, scary, terrifying way to go. You know, oftentimes when people are found, uh, they're found with their clothing items strewn about, um, you know, they've walked in circles, um, they've tried to dig into the ground, they've tried to um, find shade, or, you know, uh, we've had people who've committed suicide in the last moments because they couldn't take the pain. One that I can think of is a, a man hung himself with barbed wire. The fact that we have on average about 170 of these kind of deaths just in southern Arizona every year is really just a, a massive humanitarian disaster. People aren't dying because there's no water in the desert. People are dying because policy put them in the desert. Many fighting for their lives in the desert are picked up by border patrol to be jailed and dumped back across the border. The first place they encounter in Nogales, Mexico is El Comedor, a place that provides a meal and some dignity to migrants freshly ejected from the U.S. Their stories are harrowing. Yannette was just released from a private prison in Arizona and deported to Nogales, where she awaits her husband. She has no money and no way to communicate with him. How long did it take you to cross? A day and a night, but without stopping. Once we got to the highway, the guide said he had called a ride for us. Ours never arrived, but the coyote had his own ride and they simply left us. So much suffering. I walked and walked so much for nothing. Did you have food and water? Mine ran out, but my husband kept giving me his because I just couldn't take it anymore. The pain in my feet, with every step I took, I would endure it, but sometimes I couldn't bear it. So about two hours before we got to the road, my husband started to carry me. Almost the entire time I walked, but by then I couldn't take it anymore, so I fainted. My husband got really scared at the time. We had a guide that got us lost. He was a 17-year-old boy. He turned us into the border patrol. 
We crossed and we were walking when the border patrol saw us. The guide said, run. So we ran and I got lost. Then my husband, they got my husband and I walked, lost for three days. I couldn't take it because I didn't have water or food, so I turned myself in. They took me to immigration and put me in the ice box on the cold floor for five days. I told them the shackles hurt me because I have metal plates in my feet. They told me, no, it's for security. Racist, hysterical media coverage paints immigrants as a threat, as violent criminals who want to come to this country to steal its benefits and take good jobs. The truth is that 75% of the people attempting to enter the U.S. are already integrated into the economy and community, having already worked here for an average of nine years. Half have a family member that's a U.S. citizen, and one out of five migrants surveyed had a child with U.S. citizenship under the age of 18. Just like you and me, migrants are human beings who, above all else, want safety and security for their family. Like Jorge, who's preparing to make the terrifying trip across the open desert. I was there in Mexico, but I'm trying to cross the border to be with my two kids who live in the U.S. We arrive up to this point in fear. We don't know anybody here, so we are frightened. Everyone asks where you're going and what you're doing. So many questions. And I don't know why these people want to know those things. I have a lot of fear and sadness. Imagine if something happened to me here. Well, I would then leave my children abandoned in the U.S., where life is so expensive. The most important thing is my children. That's why I'm fighting to get to the United States. Fear of the desert is joined with fear of border patrol, always on the lookout with drones, sensors, and camera towers. An entire army deployed to round up as many as possible and send them to a court you would expect to find in a fascist country. Border states have taken their own initiatives to take expelling human beings to a whole new level. In the land of justice for all, imagine a mass trial where hundreds of refugees from Central America, still covered in sweat and sand from their journey, are shuffled into a massive courtroom, shackled and chained at their ankles and wrists. The only sound, the clanging of metal. A judge tries upwards of 80 of them at a time, assembly line style, they rotate from the pews to the stand to hear their charges for the first time, enter a plea, and receive a sentence, all within around 30 seconds each. Texas Federal District Court Magistrate Judge Bernardo Velasco bragged to the media about his personal record, sentencing 70 immigrants within 30 minutes. Then they're all shuffled away on up to 180-day sentences straight into a private for-profit prison where corporate jailers pocket around $120 a day per prisoner. The mass trials give them close to 100 new bodies per day per courtroom. This is Operation Streamline. It's such a dystopic side of American society that the courts won't allow cameras to capture what has been likened to a modern-day slave auction. Do each of you understand the rights you're giving up charges against you, the maximum penalties of those charges, the consequences of pleading guilty, and the terms of your written plea agreement. Mr. Cordero? Same. Yes. Mr. Gregorio? Same. Yes. Mr. Catalan? Same. Yes. Mr. Alvarez? Same. Yes. Mr. Blue? Same. Yes. As to all five defendants, it is the judgment of the court that they are found guilty of the petty offense of illegal entry 
Mr. Serrano was sentenced to 75 days. Mr. Ramos is sentenced to 75 days. Mr. Lopez is sentenced to 75 days. Mr. Segura is sentenced to 180 days. Mr. Lugo is sentenced to 180 days. I would like to ask you for a recommendation to serve my sentence in North Carolina. The reason that I came over here is because I haven't seen my daughter in over 11 years, and I'd like to find a way to see them. Created in 2005 by Homeland Security and the Department of Justice, Operation Streamline has drastically increased immigration prosecutions. So much so that it's a main driver of the expansion of private prisons, including injecting more than $1.2 billion into the for-profit prison system in Texas alone. And it's all on the taxpayer's dime. In Arizona, public funds of around $120 million go into Operation Streamline court proceedings. The process completely denies defendants due process protections and effective assistance from legal counsel, so-called hallmarks of our justice system, where 55% said their lawyers simply informed them that they had to plead guilty. In addition, the process is so rapid that it doesn't allow defendants who qualify for asylum status, a legal right to refugees fleeing imminent death, any time to request it. Only after their prison sentence are they asked if they want to claim asylum. But in the historic spirit of fighters against racist institutions like slavery and Jim Crow, our visit to Streamline was not the typical rapid-fire trial they wanted. Ustedes no son culpables. Hasta este corte es culpable. Los escrituras dicen que benditos los inmigrantes. Scripture tells us to welcome the migrant. Scriptures say when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will say, blessed are you who welcome those who are, who are, blessed are those who welcome the migrant. Blessed are those who, who welcome the stranger. One by one, clergy members in the audience stood up to disrupt the proceedings. Your Honor, I have on many occasions attended this hearing, and in each time, I now want to say what I remained silent for before, and that is, this is a travesty of justice, the yes, Constitution, sir. and human rights. You can talk into your Hermano, no eres culpable. Este corte es culpable. La sistema es culpable. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loosen the chain. It's a little rough. The Lord defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You are to love those who are foreigners. The mass kangaroo court has little impact on migration at all. Most everyone jailed and deported under Streamline will make the life-threatening trek through the desert all over again. Only a quarter sent to jail say they won't try to return. Who knows how many expelled by these courts will end up just another body in the graveyard at our border. And the only way to end this humanitarian crisis is unearthing the real causes. The Empire's mass roundups and deportations of immigrants from Mexico is focused most intensely in lands stolen from Mexico. Those who die in the desert do so to get to a place once under the Mexican flag. Mexico's territory once stretched the southwest of what is now the United States, so large it covered what is today Texas, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and California. Over 30,000 Mexicans lived in the area that is now New Mexico. Previously colonized by the Spanish Empire, the Mexican people won hard-fought independence in 1821. But any time one empire is driven out, the vultures of another one began circling the newly freed nation. 
For Manifest Destiny marching west, Texas became the first battleground in the U.S. expansion in 1935. After Mexico abolished slavery in its territories, white settlers drove out Mexican forces and liberated Texas for slave owners. A decade later, they set out to conquer vast swaths of territory from Mexico. The Mexican-American War became the first time U.S. troops were sent to fight on foreign soil. Leading abolitionist Frederick Douglass said of the war, in the murder of Mexicans upon their own soil, or in robbing them of their country, I can take no part either now or hereafter. Many, including Henry David Thoreau, went to jail for refusing to pay taxes in protest of the war. In 1847, after 11 years of bloody battles, U.S. generals invaded and occupied Mexico City and secured the formal surrender of half of Mexico's northern territory, negotiated at the barrel of a gun. A new United States was born, carved by the swords of army officers, and the conquest of Mexican territory brought with it a new racist rule. In California, a whites-only constitution was employed. So began the legal assault of Mexicans living in what was their country. The burgeoning U.S. empire continued to shape Mexico's future. In 1910, the Mexican people began rebelling against a 35-year president, General Porfirio Diaz, who would let the U.S. and British capitalists plunder Mexico at the great expense of the Mexican people. When revolutionary Francisco Madero unseated Diaz's rule in 1911, the U.S. assisted in his assassination and a military coup. Among U.S. actions to ensure those friendly to U.S. business interests won out in the Mexican Revolution, President Woodrow Wilson bombed and occupied the port of Veracruz. By 1918, Nogales, a city split in two by the empire's new border, became a center of tensions, defined by dehumanizing and repressive treatment by U.S. forces. In one incident, an American soldier fired a shot while harassing a Mexican carpenter, setting off a major battle. As American troops invaded the Mexican side of Nogales as punishment, militiamen and civilians took up arms to repel them. The bloodshed came to a head when the mayor of Nogales, Felix B. Penaloza, came out with a white flag tied to a cane, calling on everyone to stop shooting. American forces shot the mayor dead. With that act, the terrorized leaders in Mexico surrendered, and the first permanent U.S. border fence was built. Not only does that wall remain today, but it's become an obscene scar that cuts a community in two. The population of Nogales, Arizona is 95% Latino, and it's historically linked to its sister city across the street. But since September 11, 2001, Border Patrol has treated it like a war zone, as if they were soldiers guarding an outpost in Afghanistan. Since the border militarization, families divided by the wall have had to resort to visiting each other through the bars, the only way they can see and touch each other, despite living right next door. But even these caged reunions offend the cruelty of Border Patrol agents. When we went to the wall, approaching it within 10 feet was off limits. To find out more about how this ominous structure became what it is today, we spoke to Todd Miller, author of Border Patrol Nation, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Homeland Security. Well, you could go back to 1924. That's when the Border Patrol was started, um, was created. But for the first 70 years of its existence, all the way to 1994, um, 
they, they went from about 100 agents to 4,000 agents. Um, this wall that we're looking at right here did not exist. It was a chain link fence, there's a lot of holes in it. Um, there wasn't the technology that you see today. And then in the mid 1990s, especially, actually this wall that we're, is right behind us was constructed in March of 1994. And for those, of, many people know that's two months after the implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. We have made a decision now that will permit us to create an economic order in the world that will promote more growth, more equality, better preservation of the environment, and a greater possibility of world peace. The initiation of NAFTA in 1994 pushed under the guise of a free trade partnership with Mexico that would bolster the economy and curb immigration did just the opposite. Heavily subsidized U.S. crops flooding in drove production down and consumer prices up. New corporations dominating the market collapsed small businesses across the country. Sweatshop labor surged. 28,000 small and medium-sized Mexican businesses were destroyed in NAFTA's first four years. The price of corn, Mexico's main staple, fell by 66%, ejecting at least 2 million small farmers from their land, forced to migrate north in search of life-sustaining work. NAFTA's model of neoliberal development forever stunts Mexico's food independence. In post-NAFTA Mexico, 42% of the food consumed comes in from abroad. As a result of this terrible policy, about 22 million Mexicans in a country of 122 million live in food poverty. The number of undocumented immigrants coming to America has increased to dramatic 185%, from 3.9 million in 1992 to 11.1 million in 2011 what was called Operation Hold the Line, Operation Gatekeeper, and here Operation Safeguard, um, were these three, you know, operations that were put into place along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border um, right at the implementation of NAFTA in, in anticipation of this upsurge of immigration to then seal off the border in places that were traditional crossing places. Before 9-11, there were 9,000 Border Patrol agents working America's border but newly minted DHS funds have pumped it up to the largest law enforcement agency in the U.S., with about 46,000 agents. Under President Clinton, the funds for Border Patrol exponentially increased, skyrocketing under the Obama administration. Now, the annual budget stands at an insane $12.4 billion. Uh, what kind of technology was concentrated here at that time? It first started with the wall, of course, and then there's camera posts that they would put along the border. You can see them, you know, every, maybe every kilometer or half a kilometer. They're uh, implanted motion sensors. So we're, we could be standing on an implanted motion sensor right now as we talk. We might be triggering it and, it and it will beep in a border patrol station a couple miles away from here. There's 12,000 motion sensors implanted right now below the surface along the U.S.-Mexico border, but also inland as well. There, you know, all kinds of sophisticated cameras, not just night vision cameras, body um, thermal energy cameras. It's kind of like there's a technological, I would call it a fortress to accompany this increase in personnel. What is the Pentagon's strategy of low intensity warfare and how does it apply here at the border? You know, this is being applied on the border. Um, essentially treating the border as a war zone, right? Where there's no war, 
there's no war here. So in the in a sense, the one of the one of the big you know uh, you know um, aspects of such a low intensity doc, low intensity war doctrine is the creation of fear, and 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 you can see that all around. Like just this wall alone behind us creates a sense a fear, right? Like if a child sees a wall, a child's a child thinks, well, what's on the other side of the wall? There must be something bad on the other side of the wall. There must be something we must fear on the other side of the wall. There, and this, this idea of good and bad, innocent, criminal, non-terrorist, terrorist, you know, all these, this dichotomy um, is, is created. And um, so what we have here is, is kind of this war, you know, this creation of a low intensity war zone in, in, under what is called a prevention by deterrence strategy. The strategy of death by deterrence is perhaps most prevalent in the Sasabi Corridor, otherwise known as the Corridor of Death, where smugglers opt to bring migrants to evade border patrol. The treacherous landmass encapsulates the Babo Kiveri Mountains. The death-defying trek doesn't stop tens of thousands of people from crossing through these mountains every year. The small, heavily militarized border town of Aravaca falls in between the corridor where migrants are funneled to die. Living with this human tragedy, several community organizations have mobilized to provide life-saving aid. Reagan Wendell, Aravaca volunteer with People Helping People in the Border Zone, talks about the deaths in her backyard. People, people have been murdered by Border Patrol, but on a regular basis, on a daily basis, there's not like tons of gunfire going on. But people are being murdered. And... It's very, I mean, it's very clever and it's very cunning and it's very hidden. And I think that's the thing about it that is different from other war zones that maybe one has been in or sees on TV. It's not obvious, but it's very ruthless and almost sometimes I think more scary because it's so hidden. The war becomes more visible when Border Patrol agents murder people. Like 16-year-old Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez, who was shot dead by a Border Patrol agent through the wall in Nogales, Mexico in October of 2012. Witnesses say he was simply walking home from basketball practice when agent Lonnie Ray Swartz shot 12 rounds through the bars, hitting the young teen 10 times. Accused of being a threat to the agent's life, eight of the shots hit Jose in the back. Jose's mother, Aracele Rodriguez, remembers her son as a passionate child, eager to see the world. That was the saddest moment that we as a family have had to face. To me as a mom, the loss of my son created a huge void. There are people who understand that it is not right to stick your hand through the border fence and shoot Mexican kids just like that. It's not right to murder for the sake of it. Because we are not in a war zone. I mean, we are not at war. They have to respect the law. There is a reason why there are laws. They really had no legal right to kill him. I feel that the people that decided to indict him did it because deep down they already know that the agent is guilty. The first time I saw the killer of my son, I thought, how could such a tall man, a grown-up man, how could he? How in the world can such a big man have felt threatened by my son? I mean, who would ever believe the agent's life was in danger? I mean, how? It's really shocking and very hard to believe the agent's story that he was in danger because my son was not armed. Swartz tried to claim his life was in danger, 
then tried to avert charges based on constitutional immunity. But relentless grassroots pressure wouldn't let him get away with murdering a child and forced his indictment. The first officer to be charged with a cross-border shooting in U.S. history. One fact about the incident that Lonnie Swartz couldn't lie away was that he emptied his clip, reloaded, and continued shooting at Jose's collapsed body, an act incomprehensible to justify as anything other than an execution. But dozens of other families who have lost loved ones at the hands of Border Patrol haven't seen a sliver of justice. Since 2010, border agents have shot and killed at least 28 people. In nine of the killings, Border Patrol justified lethal force by accusing the victims of throwing rocks. Hard to understand the threat considering the rock would have to be launched over a 50-foot high wall to get near anyone. In a review of 67 shootings, it was found that Border Patrol used a tactic of intentionally stepping in front of moving vehicles to justify shooting the driver. Not a single known plaintiff in a wrongful death case against a CPD agent has won a favorable judgment by a judge or jury. In the one case with a trial judgment, the judge found that CPD agent acted in self-defense. It's not just unaccountable murder. It's rampant brutality and sexual assault. In 2014, CPD officer Esteban Manzanares kidnapped and brutally raped three Honduran women who were flagging him down for help. He was only caught because one of the women escaped to authorities, bloodied and bound. From theft to drug trafficking, the engorged federal agency has become notorious for unchecked abuse and corruption. Between 2005 and 2012, nearly one CPD officer was arrested for misconduct every single day. It's not just Border Patrol migrants have to worry about, but the U.S. Army itself. Thousands of National Guard and active duty military serve anti-immigrant deployments on the border. Last year, 1,000 National Guard soldiers were deployed to a single valley, ordered to stay indefinitely. Moreover, there are hundreds of unofficial enforcers, paramilitary, fascist militia, with body armor and assault rifles, who hunt refugees at the border. This is the Minuteman Project on steroids. We've got people with assault weapons. We will use lawful, deadly force where appropriate. In 2014, there were 22 known armed militia organizations with regular patrols in the Southwest. There are multiple incidents of militiamen opening fire on unarmed migrants, killing them with impunity. All soldiers and border patrols imaginary, one-sided war. Communities live in constant fear of border patrol and under the shadow of the looming wall separating generations of families. Students we met from Mexicayotl Academy in Nogales talk about their dystopic reality. It's sad to know that because of a border, my, my family and I are separated and that I can only go see them in occasions when I could have them here next to me every day. The U.S. Um, is supposedly buying new technology from the from the Israelis, so they're gonna establish it so Mexicans won't cross, like, to protect the U.S. They call they, it they, uh, vir virtual fence. Virtual fence. Well, that makes you know that no one's safe. You could just be walking by the street here, and then suddenly a border patrol could say, oh, you're smuggling drugs. Boom. If you look at U.S. empire, and you can look at U.S. empire in, the, in terms of U.S. interests, 
where U.S. economic interests are, military interests, or political interests, and it extends, you know. So when you, when you look at the United States in that sense, it's much bigger, it's a much bigger territory. In Central America, the, the, um, the is a perfect example, and there's so much immigration is coming from Central America, but it's a perfect example of economic policy and militarization coming to a head, like Guatemala, United Fruit, um, you know, uh, really minor reforms by a president in Guatemala in 1954. Boom, coup, a U.S.-sponsored coup comes up and uh, removes that, that president, puts in a military dictatorship that lasts the next 40 years, right? The, the war in Guatemala, the kind of what they call a civil war, armed conflict, has, is, is very much defines this kind of imposed economic system and militarization system that the U.S., you know, is very much a part of. And then instead of reconciling that, instead of looking for some sort of new way of going about things, what we've done, you know, from, from immigration, when you think of immigration, there's many complicated reasons why people leave, and it's a very difficult thing for people to do. It's a very intimate decision for people to leave their families, their communities, the food they love, the, the language they speak, the people they love, you know? It's not, it's not an easy thing for people to do. So when people do that, um, it comes from, you know, real, real reasons around livelihood. It's usually a big sacrifice for their families, like thinking about their children going to school or even feeding their children. And, and so for, for the reaction to be like, you know, for people coming north to build these walls and make their journey like very deadly, um, because of socioeconomic reasons and reasons of intense sacrifice normally for, for their families is, is something like it's really kind of mind blowing that that this is happening, and but it is here it is, and and one of the reasons it does it does happen is because we're we're it's almost like the U.S. public is conditioned to think that this is protection, right? This is we're being protected by some sort of bad person or bad people that are out to get us to steal things from us and whatnot. And and the reality of the situation, it's 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 the exact opposite. The United States by its policies have gone into places, stolen resources from, from people in many different cases, uh, made it li life really difficult for people to live, and then they migrate to the United States. Hay leyes que dan libre tránsito a las cosas there are laws to allow open borders for things, but that does not apply for people. There are treaties to make it safer and faster for products to cross. There are governments trying to make it easier and faster for products to cross. Those same governments are building walls and passing laws to prevent people from our communities to cross. They provoke the deportations. They caused the migration and created this modern form of slavery. The economic devastation by NAFTA would have caused a refugee crisis on its own. But the empire's dirty wars across Latin America and places like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua have compounded it. The U.S. government has puppeted the most brutal dictators and death squads, only to deport the people fleeing the violence they created, even when deportation means death upon return. When the U.S. government wasn't waging war on populist movements, it was using drugs as the premise for military intervention. In Mexico, the bogus war on drugs has exploded to horrific proportions, where warring cartels and drug lords terrorize communities with near impunity. Between 2001 and 2014, there were more than 164,000 murders. 
U.S. drug policy that helped drug lords grow powerful and Mexico's heavy violence to regulate them is responsible for the blood-soaked crisis that so many are fleeing today. The big lie by the empire's rulers is that they don't want undocumented immigrants. See, in 2012, undocumented workers paid $11.8 billion in taxes, while the world's biggest corporations paid zero. But it goes far beyond money reaped from taxes. If all 11 million undocumented immigrants were removed from the U.S. today, it's estimated that the GDP would decline by a whopping $1.6 trillion. Businesses with undocumented workers make bonus profits by paying less than minimum wage and averting all standards for benefits and working conditions. Some industries survive off them primarily. The most profitable sector of the economy, agribusiness, uses more than 70% immigrant labor. About a half are undocumented. And the use of undocumented labor allows the big capitalists to keep wages low across the board for all people who work in the U.S. The reality is, the entire unjust, draconian system against immigrants could be ended sensibly by granting legal rights to everyone working in the U.S. It's not without precedent. I believe in the idea of amnesty. In 1986, sweeping amnesty was granted under Reagan to nearly three million undocumented workers. And as Bloomberg Business reports, more than two decades of research show that the 1986 law raised wages and helped lift the economy. The empire needs its millions of undocumented, but it also wants a heavy hand to keep these super exploited workers from standing up. They make easy scapegoats, too, when politicians have no other answers for the problems they've created. But all of the assault rifles, chains, and prisons can't hold back the tide of justice. Since the election of Obama, undocumented youth have led the movement against deportations and raids. With so much at stake for getting arrested, they've carried out civil disobedience actions across the country that have blocked ICE buses and streets. They do so under a brave slogan, undocumented and unafraid. But immigrants' true power was demonstrated most on May 1st, 2006, when they led the largest protest ever in U.S. history. Two million took to the streets in response to a new anti-immigrant law. Millions more participated in a nationwide strike. A wave of actions shook the country for months. Big business in Washington are well aware of the sleeping giant in the U.S. economy. The people who they exploit, attack, and round up are the ones with the most power to change the system. In a country divided by a wall of racism, there are two sides. One that stands against the vicious injustice by a government that creates misery, then punishes its victims, and the other that will die in the dustbin of history. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against Empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.